Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tonight. Chapter 7 is an interesting, to say the least, chapter. Um, and it covers a lot of material that's a little bit kind of well, uncomfortable, perhaps, for a lot of people to have to, to have to either listen to or for pastors to preach on. Um, there are several passages of Scripture that talk about intimacy in a very natural and holy way. And in this chapter, Paul does talk about intimacy as it relates to uh, the husband and the wife and talks about various things that uh, are necessary for the church to understand. As a matter of fact, he begins chapter 7 with a statement that he had received a letter from the Corinthians asking questions about this very topic and a few others as well that he is going to address a little later on. So here we are in chapter 7, and beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, we read this word from Paul the Apostle. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Now a couple of things need to be said here, I think, before we get too far into the text. Uh, first of all, the Greek word that is used where the translation I'm using uh, says a man is not to touch a woman, that word touch is a pretty emphatic word from in the Greek language, and it means to ignite passion or to kindle a flame, uh, to cling. You may remember that particular word was used by Jesus with regard to Mary when she was clinging to him after the resurrection in the garden. And Jesus had told Mary, don't cling to me, don't keep on hanging on to me. And that's the word here, but in this case, it has to do with passion. And again, a better translation might be, don't ignite the passion of a woman. Well, that implies sexual immorality outside of marriage. And Paul has been addressing that particular topic already in chapter 5, you may remember. He had to address a situation where a man was sexually immoral with his own father's wife. In chapter 6, he tells us at the end of chapter 6 in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So he's talking about sexual immorality here as well, and he wants to make sure that the Corinthian church and us, of course, understand that there are things that we need to be careful with in regard to this issue of sexuality. He goes on in verse 3 to say, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. That's always a good thing. Um, in some of your translations, instead of the phrase, render to his wife affection due her, it simply says, fulfill his duty to her. And that duty has to do with the need for the husband and wife to have a relationship that's based upon godly sensualities. 
And so Paul is going to be telling us, and by the way, there is plenty of information that he includes in chapter 7 for the single individuals and also for those that perhaps have lost their spouse, the widows, or those who are either involved in or have been involved in a divorce proceeding. He touches on all of those things because they're all very much important to the marriage relationship or our relationship with other individuals outside of marriage. And so Paul is going to be talking a lot about these things, but I want to remind you that if any of us have gone through a divorce or if we are single or if we are widows, you know, God knows your situation and, you know, some people are feeling guilty about certain things in their relationships that they might have had over the years, but you are a child of God if you have been born again and those past relationships that you may have been involved in, they're covered by the blood of Christ. And so you don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to be concerned about, oh, no, what am I going to do? Look at what Paul is saying here, and look what I have done. Don't let that happen in your understanding of what God is speaking in this passage that we're looking at tonight. Well, verse 4 says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So there's a connection that we have as husbands and wives that we have a responsibility to be pleasing to the other. And I emphasize that whenever I do any amount of marriage counseling or preparing a couple for marriage, I always want to emphasize and do emphasize the need to recognize the fact that in a marriage relationship, We are to be others. um, I'm trying to think of the word centered, others centered. And so that's what Paul is saying here. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. So the husband is to take care of his wife and she is to take care of him in the areas of the relationships that we have as husband and wife. And it includes that relationship of sexuality. Verse 5 says, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul is saying here that there are times when you should agree not to have a sexual relationship with your husband or your wife if it is a Time for you to be praying, and in my translation, again, the words fasting and prayer are used. In some translations, um, the word fasting is not in that translation that you may have. It's not in every manuscript, and the reason for that is kind of unknown, but it's also something that we'll be looking at when we are studying in the book of Matthew next Sunday morning, where Again, that phrase, fasting and praying, is in the translation that I use, but not in all of the manuscripts, therefore not all of the translations that are being used by the people of our church body would see the word fasting. I think it's important that fasting is included personally. I think it's necessary for us to understand that there is a place for us to be taking the time to set apart a portion of our day, 
in prayer, certainly, but in fasting from time to time, there is, I think, a need for a commitment to doing that. Now, we can fast many, many different ways, and I'm not suggesting that you have to fast one way or the other to uh, to uh, become more spiritual. You're not going to find me saying that at all. But fasting is, I think, a very important part of who we are in Christ, and I recommend taking the time to fast from time to time and pray during that fasting, whether it's giving up food for a meal or two or three or a couple of days or more than that. Some people fast for several days. Um, It's certainly something that is individually chosen by the person and God honors that commitment. So Paul is saying here that you are to not exclude that sexual relationship as husband and wife, except for when you are entering into a serious time of fasting and praying. And then come together again so that Satan doesn't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And everybody knows that there is a sex drive that many people are today struggling with because there is so much in the world around us that tempts especially men, but also women. And so it's important to realize that we have to control that lustfulness, that lack of self-control. And if it's not controlled in the husband and wife relationship, it's not very likely that it will be controlled in any other area of our lives. So it's a very important thing that Paul is saying here. And in verse 6, he adds a statement that he is going to say more than once in this chapter indicating that not everything that he says came directly from the Lord's own words. He says in verse 6, But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. So it's important to understand that Paul is saying because of his apostolic authority, it should be understood as being of great value to us and necessity of leaning as much as we are able, in the direction which Paul is bringing us with regard to sexuality. But he says it's just a means of conveying something to the people of God in a way that they would understand. This isn't something that came directly from the Lord, but I believe it, Paul says, to be of great value. It's a concession that he's making, not a commandment. And then in verse 7, he says, For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Paul is here saying that there are some who have a gift of singleness. And Paul is saying, in effect, he himself is now single. Whether he has always been single or whether he had a wife, but either the wife died or the wife left him. There's a lot of uh, people that are writing all kinds of commentaries on that one thought. Did Paul have a wife? We don't know. Some people say that because Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, that he did have a wife while he was in the Sanhedrin, because that was required. Well, that's folklore, actually. 
And it's not something that is in any of the code in Jewish history or in the Jewish rabbinical writings. So there's not really any validity in our taking that kind of a stand to say Paul had to have been married. That may not necessarily be the case. But it is very likely that Paul was indeed a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a ruling class of Jews in the Lord's days. And that Sanhedrin was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and and those who were learned individuals, and Paul certainly was one of them. And he would not have been able to get the papers to persecute the church as he did, according to the book of Acts, unless he was a member of the Sanhedrin. So whether or not he was married again is kind of up for grabs. But Paul says here that he is not married. He's single. And he's saying again in verse 7, I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has a gift. And it is a gift. Singleness, if you don't have the gift, can be very, very difficult. And it was something that I would recommend if a person were single and would come to me for advice with regard to whether or not that person should marry, I would suggest that, first of all, you find out if it is God who has given you the gift of singleness. Some people have been given that gift. Even Jesus himself had indicated that there were some who were born eunuchs, and some made themselves to be eunuchs. And a eunuch was an individual who would be without the ability to have any sexual relationship. And that's a choice in some cases, Jesus said. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's a choice. But Paul doesn't say that you should not get married. As a matter of fact, Paul writes in First Timothy in chapter 4 that there were some in the church at that time, and it's present in the day today, that they forbid to marry. And that should not be so, Paul said. Paul did not discourage marriage, but he did say, if you've got the calling of singleness, then stay single. That's what he was doing. And he gives an explanation later on in the text as to why he recommends these things. But in verse 8, to the unmarried, he says, and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. In other words, if you are struggling with this passion, uh, this sex drive, and you're in a position where you maybe once were married and now have lost your spouse, or you have entered into a relationship somehow that you're no longer in a marriage relationship, whether or not that was a godly decision, it doesn't matter in this particular context that Paul is giving here. He's just saying, stay as you are if you are able. And if not, because of the passion in you, then seek to find somebody that will enter into a marriage relationship with you. So he speaks again to the widows and to uh, the unmarried, and he just makes these statements, and then he says in verse 10, with regard to the marriage vows, now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Notice this time, he's saying, this is coming from the Lord's own words. 
we're not given the detail as to how Paul attained or obtained rather those commands from the Lord. Some believe, and I think it's right that we would understand it this way, that Paul, when he became a believer in Damascus, after his eyes were opened, he went for a season into Arabia. And it was there, for however long it was that Paul was there, that the Lord basically gave him his education in the New Testament. And it was perhaps there that Paul received the command of the Lord that he's referring to here. And again, verse 10 is stating, To the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. There is no legitimate reason for a wife to leave her husband outside of sexual immorality. Fornication, adultery, if the husband has committed those sins, that is grounds for the divorce. He's going to talk about that. Jesus had mentioned that very thing. Jesus had taken that very, very strict position that was taken by one of the rabbis of Jesus' day. And there was another rabbi who spoke just the opposite with regard to divorce. He said a man could divorce his wife for any reason. If she didn't cook the meal the way he liked it, if she spoke out of turn, if she did anything that displeased him, in that rabbi's opinion, divorce was acceptable. Now, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, Moses gives us the details about the divorce proceedings. And Moses basically says, if the wife displeases the husband, then he is to write her a bill of divorce. When the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him about that very statement of Moses, Jesus said, that command was given because of the hardness of your hearts. And in the beginning, it was not so, Jesus said. For in the beginning, man and women came together as husband and wife, and the husband was to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two would become one flesh. And that's why we still consistently teach today that marriage is a sacred institution given by God. Now, the world doesn't recognize that. And so they choose to have their marriage relationships Whatever they choose to have is right in their own eyes. But as far as God is concerned, marriage is an institution that was created by him for the reason primarily of procreation, because they were to be fruitful and multiply, and also to experience the love between a husband and wife, a man and a woman, that can only be realized in a proper marriage relationship. The world doesn't have that, and they've twisted it. And it's a terrible situation that we see all over our nation and throughout the world. But God is still the God who said these things. He hasn't changed. And it's his opinion, and I believe his opinion is the very most needful to be listened to. A wife should not depart from the husband. Now, in the Jewish culture, 
that wasn't even an available choice to the wife. She had no legal rights with regard to Jewish law to divorce her husband. The, the husband could divorce her, but she could not divorce him. Now, Paul is here talking to a Gentile audience primarily, although there may be some Jews within the Corinthian church assembly, but for the most part, they were Gentiles. And they had Gentile customs. Both the Roman and the Greek cultures influenced them, very, very greatly influenced by those cultures. And the Romans believed that it was legitimate to have as many wives as you chose to have. As long as you could afford to have them, it was all right. Paul is saying we're to have one husband or one wife, period. No more. That's it. So there's one distinct difference as the Corinthian people came to the Lord they needed to understand that the marriage relationship is very, very important to God and it is only to be between one man and one woman. Nothing else can be satisfying to our Lord and should never be uh, implemented within the body of Christ. In the Greek culture, there were options for the wife to divorce her husband. So Paul is addressing kind of a mixed bag of possibilities between the Jewish culture, the Roman culture, and the Greek cultures. And he says simply, as believers in Christ, we now have a new understanding, a new set of principles, guidelines, by which we must experience that marriage relationship. And that's why, again, in verse 10, he says specifically, this is the Lord's command. A wife shall not depart from her husband. And then he goes on to say, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. If she leaves him, it would be what we would call a separation. They're separated, but they're still married. The purpose is to hopefully bring reconciliation and bring them back together as husband and wife. Because a husband should never consider divorce except for sexual immorality. In verse 12, he continues and says, But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe... If he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. So consider the possibility that you have a marriage where the husband is a believer, the wife is not. Perhaps the husband came to the Lord after they were married, or could have been perhaps before as well, which would have been a wrong choice for him, by the way, to marry an unbeliever if he was a believer when he first got married. But assume for a moment that this husband and wife are not on the same page because he came to the Lord, she has not. So that's what Paul's saying. Or the vice versa side of that arrangement is that the wife came to the Lord and the husband did not. Now, if the husband were to say to the wife, I'm not a believer, I don't understand why you believe this, but I don't want to leave you, I want to stay with you. The wife, a believer, is to say yes to that. I want you to stay. Don't 
let the husband go as an unbeliever. And he's going to give an answer to why that is so in the pursuing verses. And again, the same applies with regard to the husband being a believer and the wife an unbeliever, so that if the unbelieving spouse chooses to stay with the believing spouse, it's a good thing for them to do so. You don't break up the marriage just because of that. Verse 14 gives the explanation. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now, it's an interesting thing that he uses specific words here. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about being separated unto the Lord, made to be potentially by her influence as a believer or by his influence as a believer. The spouse and the children are being sanctified. There's a covering over them, if you will, in the family relationship. And that's something that should be considered because you don't know whether your husband, an unbeliever, might be saved or your wife, as an unbeliever, might be saved. He's going to say that next. In verse 15, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, I've seen relationships where the husband was not a believer and the wife was. And one in particular, the wife went to every Bible study, went to every church service, did all kinds of church business, things that she thought was appropriate for her to be involved with, whether or not she was to be involved in all of those is certainly between her and the Lord. But what it was doing, it was causing her husband to look at what she was involved in, and he was not involved in any of that. And he resented it. Many, many years went by until finally she came to a conclusion that she needed to back away from all of that church ministry stuff that she was involved with and spend more time with her husband in a relationship that he would be able to see that she loved him as much as she loved the church and though she should love Jesus more than the church or him, she needed to convey that wonderful knowledge that she was not letting him understand, that she wanted him to experience what she was experiencing. But she backed off from all of those things, and he began to realize that there's something about her. There's something that's different. There's something has changed in the relationship. And he was enjoying it so much more than he had ever, ever before until he came to the Lord as a result. She won him over to Christ. He was saved because of her constant love and affection toward him. I've seen it go the other way. I've also seen children impact a husband in one case, where the wife and the children were all believers. And it wasn't until one of the children came to this dear man of God now, but then a drunkard, and she said, Daddy, why don't you believe in Jesus? 
won't you come to church with us? And she pleaded with him. And she touched his heart. And that was the leading of the Holy Spirit. He went to church. He got saved. And a dynamic Christian resulted from that salvation. So there's great, wonderful stories. There are also stories of sadness and unfortunate situations that have developed when a husband and a wife aren't on the same page with regard to their faith. But Paul says, how do you know you might save him or her? And back again in verse 15, if the unbeliever departs, then you let him or her go. You're not responsible for that. You can't control that. If he or she isn't willing to stay and he wants to go, then you're not under any obligation and you should never feel guilty about it. Well, verse 17 goes back to the calling that we talked about in verse uh, 7 with regard to the calling of a single man or woman. He says in verse 17, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called to each one, let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him come or not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Now, it's pretty obvious that Paul isn't talking here about physical circumcision, because you really is not very likely that you're going to undo what that, what's been done with regard to circumcision. But what Paul is saying is, if you were called as a Jew and you've become a believer in Christ, you're not to try to become a Gentile. You're a Jew. And so you can continue to act as a Jew if that's what God has called you to. Likewise, if you're a Gentile, uncircumcised, you're not to become like a Jew just to please the Lord because he was Jewish. But you realize that neither circumcision or uncircumcision profits anything. That's what he says in verse 9. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. That's the principle that we need to apply in our daily walk. Whether we were uncircumcised or circumcised, whether we were Jew or Gentile, male or female, bond or free, he's going to be talking about all of those. And he says it should not matter. What matters really to all of us is the need for us to understand that God has given us commandment to follow. The greatest commandment is to love one another as God has loved us. That's enough of a commandment for me to keep me busy for a while. I hope it is for you as well. Verse 20 says, Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Again, he's repeating this because it's so important for us to understand that God does call individuals to certain positions in life. Whether it's singleness or marriage, whether it's as a pastor or a layperson, whether it's any number of different possibilities, and he's going to enunciate on a few of those. In verse 20, again, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. And then in 21 he says, were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather, 
Use it. In other words, you know, don't be bothered if you're a slave. And, of course, we don't have slavery in our society, well, for the most part. Um, there's slavery going on around the world and in the United States as well. There's a sex trade that's enslaving many, many people. But he says if you're called in that, don't worry about it. Don't concern yourself with it. That's where you've been. And if you can't be free, then you're still a believer. That's all that matters. For who is called in the Lord while a slave is a Lord's freeman. That brings great joy to those who are burdened by slavery. Likewise, he is who also is called while free is Christ's slave. He kind of reverses that. All right, the slave is Christ's freeman, but the free person is Christ's slave. Why does he say that? Well, simply put, both are true. We are free in Christ, but we are his servants. And if we understand both concepts applied to us as believers, how wonderful it is to know these things to be so. That's why he says, you were bought with a price, verse 23. Do not become slaves of men. Don't allow yourself to submit yourself to the authority of a man. Make sure that you submit yourself to the authority of God. He is ultimately our authority. Jesus is ultimately our head, the head of the body. He is our spiritual head. And in that, there is authority. Keep in mind that God gave to Adam great authority because he was also the cover of his wife Eve, the protector, her champion. That was his role. And it's the role of every man, every husband who has ever been in a marriage relationship. Not to rule over the wife, but to cover the wife, protect and help her. She helps him because without her, men, we would be in such bad shape. But that relationship is based on the wife's willingness to submit herself to her own husband while he loves her as Christ loved the church. Others-centered focus. That's important. And it's based upon Christ as our head over us, his bride. And in the same way, the husband is in that same kind of relationship arrangement with an authority, yes, but it's an authority that is given by God for a purpose and to be utilized in a specific way to bless the wife, to make her want to submit herself to you. She won't submit herself if you don't love her the way Christ loved the church. So it's very important that we understand that. Each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Now, I'd like to stop there tonight because the rest of the chapter uh, goes on to talk about various kinds of relationships that are 
perhaps not so familiar with us in our present day, but it was very important to the Corinthians. Again, Paul is answering questions that they had, that they wrote to him a letter asking these questions, and he is here in these few chapters answering those questions um, in a very, very powerful, profound, and holy way. So I hope this portion of chapter 7 has brought encouragement to you as whether or not a husband or a wife or a single person or one who is without a spouse for whatever reason. Let the Lord minister to you through these words that have been spoken tonight uh, by the Apostle Paul. They should always be encouraging to us because it is the very word of God and it provides a way for us to have a relationship with others that otherwise would not be possible. So God is faithful, and he is always there to help. And if you have any reason to doubt whether or not you are living the way you should live in a relationship, whether it's in a marriage relationship or any other kind of relationship, you go to the Lord and you seek his will. And he will answer. He will show you in his word, perhaps by rereading this passage that we've looked at tonight or some other passage. There are, as I said earlier, many different passages in the scriptures that speak on these kinds of relationships. I love reading the Proverbs. And Proverbs speaks on many different subjects. But Proverbs 5 is a wonderful proverb that I love to go to that reminds me of the relationship that I should have with my wife and I want to have with my wife and I'm pleased to have with my wife. Also, there are other places that you can go in the scriptures as well. And Song of Solomon is one of those places. And a lot of churches won't even touch the Old Testament book, Song of Solomon, because it is laced with all kinds of sexual innuendos. But that's a holy God speaking to us, his people, through his word to give us the wonderful news that the relationship that we have with him is the same as the relationship that a husband and wife should have. And that's why he includes such phrases in the Song of Solomon as, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He is taking me to his banqueting table. There are wonderful passages of scripture in the book of Song of Solomon that really speak of a deep, intimate relationship. And it's really very important for us to realize that that is the relationship that God wants for us and also to have with us. Let us never forget these things. And let us always contemplate on the mercies and the grace and the privilege of serving God as we continue to move forward in our walk with him. God bless you all. Thanks for coming.